0: Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and we come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the contents of our weekly wrap-up post, Another Week Ends, which is sort of our Christian cosmopolitan, grace-infused guide to the contents of the interwebs for the week. In just a moment, I'll be joined by Ethan Richardson, sitting in for David Zoll, and Sarah Condon to talk about another weekend's. But first, a conversation with a friend and colleague, Jeff Holsklau, who has recently written a book on St. Augustine, Hegel, and the Self, and also is the co-host of the Theology on Mission podcast. So, with no further ado, I give you my conversation with... Jeff Hulsklau. Well, for the first time on the Mockingcast, Reverend Dr. Jeff Holesclaw of Northern yeah. Seminary of Life on the Vine Church and author of... A new book on Augustine and Hegel. Yep. Who everybody learned about in their undergraduate Western intellectual survey course. Now, full disclosure, Jeff and I are friends. Uh, we've been friends for a while, and we also are both started off in podcasting about the similar a similar time, right?
1: Yeah, about last summer.
0: And your podcast is Theology on Mission.
1: Co hosted with Dave Fitch. Yes, Dave indeed. Fitch, who's a Neo-Anabaptist
0: and talks a little like Jack Nicholson. He looks like Jack Nicholson. He looks and talks like Nicholson. So, Jeff, I want to talk about something light today, something sort of uh, on people's minds, but a light-hearted topic. What's the nature of freedom, and what does your book tell us about Freedom. Oh okay, yeah, we're going to take that easy
1: topic. I was glad you didn't ask me something like "What's the nature of beauty" or the or the good or something like that.
0: We know that, but nature of beauty—just go on Instagram and hashtag. And you, can, <laughs> you can find no. you, you can you can see the nature of beauty.
1: That's right, and the goodness is found on Pinterest for sure.
0: Absolutely. What's the book title, by the way? So the book title
1: uh, that just came out a couple weeks ago is it's called "Transcending Subjects uh, on Augustine, Hegel, and Theology." Uh, And it's really about like freedom. How do we understand freedom? How do we get freedom? Um, And what does theology have to do about that?
0: So, is freedom is freedom just another word for nothing left to lose? Nothing left to lose. Uh, It could be. I think usually, you know, that's Janis Joplin, like uh, Bobby McGee. Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose.
1: Well, right. Don't you you get that in the, uh, the usual suspects where you get the, the freedom of the mobster because he has no family. He has no no care. And so he can kill anybody he wants and things, things like this.
0: Or like the Joker in the dark night. Freedom is no attachments.
1: Freedom is, is having no love. Actually, I've been watching, uh, the TV show Gotham, you know, which is the backstories of all these characters that you get in, in Batman. And, uh, in 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 the kind of origin stories of both Penguin and Enigma you get this sense that Penguin can only be the true villain that he is after his mother is brutally killed because he had this attachment to his mom that was holding him back from being the mob boss that he ultimately would become so attachments are evil and freedom is good
0: yeah i that's one look at it. by the way i am surprised i i've i've watched Part of season one, uh, my wife Lindy and I, like, kind of, we're into so many shows that sometimes we go back to stuff. I am surprised at how compelling Gotham is without Batman. I mean, I thought, gosh, you do this without Batman. What's the point?
1: Oh, it's such a good show. I love it. Yeah,
0: it's really good. I, I think it's really interesting.
1: Yeah. So you get everything I just said comes in season two so all right but, so, so we'll for, have you back right, we'll have so, you
0: back when i'm through on when i'm through season no, two.
1: we entered into dangerous territory although i know all your mockingbird people will enjoy it but like cultural references and savviness is not my forte so i'm gonna run out of steam pretty quick so we gotta reel this back into the realm of philosophy and theology
0: but you're a well-dressed man
1: oh well maybe
0: so i mean you know that generally you, you must have some savvy
1: some savvy some well i, I attribute that to being raised in california so there we go. I already we're only like three minutes into this and I already put my Californian, you know, card out there.
0: Where in California?
1: The Bay Area, San Jose. Do you do you know the way?
0: Yeah, I you know, I've spent more time in Southern California. I feel like oh. I, I lived in Pittsburgh. Beep, I, for I just have podcast is over, Southern California. <laughs> i was, when I lived in Pittsburgh, I felt like I was a Pittsburgh 10. Like people don't eat well, nobody works out. When I go to Southern California, I feel like I'm like a two. <laughs> I'm like, what? there have to be unattractive people here statistically. but It's like the Morlocks. Maybe they just put them in parking garages. <laughs> it's possible. They only come out after the sun goes down. So philosophy, Hegel, Augustine, freedom. What What is... Uh, Hegel, it seems. Now, I'm, I'm not... Uh, Hegel's not especially of mine, nor is, I guess, continental philosophy. But it seems like today there's like a Hegel renaissance, right? There's a Hegel... I mean, people... This nineteenth-century figure is 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 the, you know, is the focus of a lot of reflection. Yes, I actually, yes. I actually heard a Hegel scholar say, on Robert Harrison's interview podcast, uh, entitled "Opinions." He said that um, one of my colleagues told me that uh, taking advice on Hegel uh, on logic from Hegel it'd be like taking culinary advice from Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Ah, come on. Well, see, this is the problem with both Hegel and Augustine's is that, as you said, as you introduced, like, oh, these are two people that everybody knows about, right? Like, Augustine gave us the autobiographical form and he gave us the volitional free will. And Hegel, he is that what? thesis, antithesis, synthesis, right? So everyone has these cartoon versions, as, as a lot of us you know say, cartoon versions of who Hegel was and what his project was. And, and Augustine and a lot of people lay all the ills of modernity right at Augustine's feet or something like that. So a lot of the, the, the work that I was doing was trying to clear the ground a little bit about those cartoon versions. Um, but when it comes to Hegel, yeah, he was, there is a renaissance, and it's partly because he was the first great enlightenment critic of uh, post are not a post secular, but of, of secularism. So he was a critic of this kind of like sweeping everything religious and everything God to the side. Um, and he said, no, you can't do that. There needs to be a really prominent place for religion, a really prominent place for God. And so now uh, kind of after kind of the postmodern milieu and now we, whatever this post secularism is now, Hegel's viewed as a resource. Uh, oh, he's, he's thinking about some sort of robust place for God in our society. Like, Oh, like he's already done that. Let's look at that and see. So people what he's talk
0: doing. about right. People talk about the problem of the the naked public square, so to speak. Right, like this this idea that you could sort of make the public square and public discourse like religion value free. We all just argue based on secular reason. And that you're saying that basically uh, that that is people have a much greater degree of skepticism regarding the possibility of that.
1: Right. So the ability to kind of be this unencumbered self where we just kind of uh, throw off all tradition, all religious, you know, pretenses, and and we just are our our better selves. And, And I think Hegel was the first critic of that there's no such thing as that there's no such thing as just the bare self we all come with histories and traditions and those are and for him those were good things and so while the enlightenment trajectory was mostly against tradition he actually had this place for tradition and so that's why i think a lot of people uh are are turning toward him again as this resource because we're all uh people with a history whether good or bad And we have to own that we can't just pretend like things didn't happen Tradition. There we go. Fiddler on the roof. Well, so back to the question of freedom is I think a lot of times uh, we view freedom as the ability to choose whatever we want. Right? So there's this volitional aspect, uh, like I'm choosing, and there's this desire aspect, what I want. Um, And so, and then society is just created around that. Right? And so this is... uh, what they call uh non interference and things like that. So as long as you do, Scott, whatever you want to do, and as long as it doesn't interfere with what I want to do, then we're both free. But as long as but once you start kind of inhibiting my desires, uh, and I inhibit yours, well then we need to kind of bring in what's, you know, government and society to mitigate, you know, the differences and this where we get laws and rights and blah, blah, blah. Uh and the only difference between like Republicans and Democrats is just how much power the government should have to mitigate between our freedoms. Right. So Hegel comes in and says, that's not a very great understanding of freedom. We need a much more lofty understanding of freedom, maybe of striving toward the good or something like that. Uh, And so he tries to complicate kind of the easy Hobbesian kind of understanding of freedoms. But at the end of the day, I think he does not accomplish what he hopes to. And I think he kind of just mirrors a lot of the bad aspects of our contemporary culture. So that's my, you know, that's my quick version of, of Hegel.
0: So you're saying Hagel set out sets out on a good project, but in your estimation, he really doesn't move the ball far enough down the field to change the game.
1: Yeah, and that's because for him, the ultimate coordinates of this conversation is is human self-realization. And so he feels like we need to transcend, in a sense, our animal natures. And so just our bare desires aren't good enough to to be freedom. Uh, but he also doesn't want God to be too involved uh, because he feels like that's an alien law that'll come upon us. And so he really just wants humanity to, uh, in a sense, figure it out and transcend its own limitations according to its own resources. And at the end of the day, uh, I say all you get is One of two things, you either get some sort of communitarian control uh, through social norms or something like that, is that the community is always right and you just have to follow and obey. Or on the other hand, you kind of get these irrational outbursts and label label it freedom and transition and revolution and sticking it to the man. And we've all met people like that who feel like, you know, they're really standing up against something, but really they're just kind of outbursting and kind of giving themselves an identity by what they're against. So neither of those options, I think, ultimately can give us the freedom we want, which is why then I turned the page to Augustine, who has a robust sense of how God intervenes, but also participates in our life. um, And in that way draws us toward a freedom. Really, for me, the ultimate question isn't what is freedom, but it's how do we get freedom? How do we live into Mm -hmm. freedom? And I think that's a major question between like our modern project, which is just obsessed about giving a definition to what freedom is, but there's hardly any... Uh, consideration of, well, how do we become more free people? And I think when we start asking that question, how do we become more free? You find out that the resources are very paltry outside of some sort of understanding of transcendence and grace and love that intervenes into our situation, which is what I think Augustine gives us.
0: It's interesting because you mentioned like two options. It takes this communitarian approach where the community is always right, or you you act like you're a revolutionary, but really you're just, but those external controls I mean, there's a sense in which what does Augustine say? God, uh, command what you will and then give me the grace to will what you command. Yeah. Because unless we will the good, we don't feel free. I mean, maybe we make some better decisions because we think, oh, okay, maybe I shouldn't do this because it might mess up my job or my marriage, or but we know that like uh it, like if 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 you know somebody says don't walk on the grass, you just want to walk on it. Yeah. So in some sense, there has to be this spontaneous, like there's this great uh William Cowper him right love constrains t- to obedience and the the one of the uh, courses or one of the verses is uh to hear the law by Christ to see the law by Christ fulfilled to hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty to choice
2: mm, mm-hmm.
0: yes exactly so there's something about this revelation of love apart from the law in Christ that that uh can actually have a reparative effect on the will,
1: mm-hmm. and he talks about quite a bit. Augustine, I, I think it's what, Romans thirteen ten, where uh, you know have no debts except for the continuing debt of love. You know, so the only law is to continue to love, uh, and so yeah, for him, freedom is to will the good. Uh, it isn't to do what you want. Uh, unless what you want is to do what's good. But the thing is, is is, you know, so a lot of times that can sound really abstract. And then uh, for Augusta and others, you know, there's there's the criticism that we're just giving ourselves over to God. We lose all of our own freedom, subjectivity or whatever. Um, And he says, no, that's not the case because God became human. And so to will God's will is to just will what Jesus willed and Jesus willed as a human being. And so really, I'm just learning how to be human. And when I, want, when I will, God's will, I'm learning how to be who I, you know, truly am. And so, like, I talk, we probably talked about this before, about how outside of uh, grace and Christ and love, we all kind of are living these subhuman kind of existences, you know, we're kind of, we're subhuman. Outside of truly willing the good, which is in Christ, um, and so Augustine really he points us to the embodied flesh of Christ, he calls it the coat of skin, going back to Genesis three, you know just as God gave Adam and Eve these coats of uh, skin to clothe themselves, so now we have Christ's flesh, and we're clothed in him, and so we can will the good through Christ just as he did
0: so how does that how does the self-giving of God in Christ and the love therein? Solve the Hegel problem.
1: Well, it solves the Hegel problem because it's... um, So you get with with Augustine a lot, this kind of what's often called the myth of suddenness, you know, like he's having all this, you know... uh, in his book, The Confessions, you know, he has all the, he narrates these inner turmoils and all this trouble and whatnot. And then he's in a garden and then he hears a child and is pick up and read and oh, this, and he's transformed. Right? And for, in my context, I'm an evangelical, you know, born and raised. Uh, that's, you know, that's my family. So I can't, yep. I can't renounce some my family. Some of my
0: best, some of my best friends are evangelical. Yeah.
1: I'm your one evangelical friend, right? And so, uh, so it's this myth of suddenness, but really uh, when you read the narrative and then his theology closely, you see that there's a slow progression and, tra- and changing of communities as he's leaving one community and entering slowly into uh, another community, uh, and that God... Is the one who's kind of orchestrating all these things uh, in his life and bringing different people in his life at different moments to kind of teach him different things and move him forward. And so, really, there's this like long extended progression uh, that's working out in his life. And so, uh, which is a very human uh, progression. And so, So God becomes human, but he's also creating this community, which is why we never need, we should never forget the history of Israel when we're thinking of Christianity is the, you know, that is all part of who we are, this community that we're continuing. And so God comes in among us. And with us as grace and intervenes and he, and he solves this, this Hegel problem because, as I said, Hegel doesn't have the resources because he's only looking at humanity as we are without kind of any extra input. And so it's, it's really like a dying system, right? You know, it's an enclosed greenhouse that has closed the shutters and there's no more sun coming in and it's eventually going to die. And so, uh, in a sense, Augustine has this, you know, and I think the good forms of theology, um, have this openness to the transcendent. And not just openness to the transcendent, but an awareness that transcendence has come in an, and lived among us. And I think that's the key the the key component is that God has come and lived among us and showed us how to do this thing. And so that's how we can break out and, and move from uh an unfree to a more free place because God is walking with us to do that. So Augustine has this great uh this great line. He says, uh God or Jesus is God and man. As God, he shows us the goal where we're going, but as man, he walks the way he is the way. And so he's the goal, but he's also the way. And so a lot of times, uh, Hegel or others can have the goal, but they have no idea how to get there. This is actually Augustine's complaint against all the Platonists and blah, blah, blah for those philosophers. He says they have the goal, but they don't know the way Jesus is the way. And he's not the way who's uh, different than us, but he's one of us. He's a brother.
0: Yeah. There's a, a scene in the political drama, the West wing where the chief of staff who's a recovering alcoholic and has had some tough life experiences is talking to the deputy chief who had, who was a gunshot victim and was having trauma response. So they're, and he gets them some help. And at the end of the episode, uh, the chief of staff tells his deputy a story. He's like, look, there's a story of a guy, uh, falls in a hole. And the guy sees a priest walk by and says, father, can you help me? Uh, so the priest writes a prayer and throws it down in the hole. And a couple hours later, a physician (laughs) physician comes by and he says, doctor, can you help me? You know, I'm caught in this hole. And the physician writes a prescription and throws it down the hole. So a couple hours later, a friend of his comes by and he says, can you help me, buddy? I'm in this hole. And the friend jumps in the hole. He says, what are you doing? Now we're both here. He's like, yeah, but I've been in the hole before and I know the way out. (laughs) nice and and there's something about like and then it's a very moving scene because then the guy says as long as I have a job you have a job and it's a very moving but yeah i mean this sounds like it's a beautiful picture of the incarnation it's not enough to sort of write prescriptions or something and throw them down but there needs to be a sort of indwelling um for us and with us
1: yeah and i think it it really is you know part of my whole you know project as a pastor and a theologian is to kind of uh bring in the god with us into every aspect of theology and pastoral life is God's really with us, you know, and I think Augustine or not Augustine, but Hegel and other, a lot of contemporary forms of, of theology really kind of negate that radical aspect of the incarnation that God is really with us. You know, like I think you had uh, Mandy Smith on a couple of weeks ago and this kind of sense of shame and vulnerability. And, and, you know, and God says that to us, he's like, I'm with you in this. I know what it's like. Uh, I've been here and I, and like you said, I know the way out. So let's go. Um, and I think that's really important uh, pastorally to be able to give people that sense of God's really with you here. I'm with you here as a person. I've learned how to be with you here, suffering person, because Christ has been with me. Um, and so, and I think that, that that is the road to true freedom. Because I see all, you know, we all know people who uh, just want to be themselves and they want to be authentic. And you look at them and you're like, who, who are you talking about? You've just adopted a self that you've seen in commercials and movies and radio and podcasts like this, or the songs you listen to, like, you don't even know who you were trying to be, you know? And so they're in this attempt to be free. There's just in a continual enslavement to all these different narratives that we're given. Uh, so can we, you know, give people this true freedom, uh, freedom of the gospel of grace, you know, however you want to talk about it, um, so yeah, so that's kind of my passion here.
0: Sorry. Do you think do you think people out there really find identities from podcasts like ours and try to emulate we, identity? Because if we so, can only help so, <laughs> so that's really flattering. I'm like I'm like, whoa. <laughs> I hope, even though it's idolatrous and you know, going nowhere, at least it's flattering. I mean if somebody were Please send your reviews those,
1: to okay. iTunes, it tells how much you've modeled your life on ours. This is Theology on Mission or the Mocking Marking Bird podcast.
0: <laughs> Absolutely, please there go. go there now. Uh, you can press pause.
1: Yeah, press go. pause and write your review. This will really help our the false identities and false selves that Scott and I are perpetuating right now.
0: Jeff, like, why? Just uh, one last question: Why you're a guy that's got a foot in the academy, as they say, the, uni, the, the seminary context, higher education, but you're also a working pastor high-powered wo-
1: and lucrative uh, professions I might add
0: exactly exactly I mean you are yeah I mean your retirement prospects are probably fabulous <laughs> but I wonder why like why are those worlds so disconnected so often um, well I
1: think uh, I really I really envy the Anglicans I feel like the Anglicans are the ones you know I don't know about the Episcopals and you know and others but uh, they've really managed to keep I think the the pastorate and professors, of the church and the academy together. So I always look fondly toward them. But I think in my context, the evangelical context, there's a lot of historical reasons, um, a lot of just pragmatic uh, reasons that, uh, that these two kind of uh, what, what should be close, you know, brothers have, have kind of gone different ways. And, and so I think, um, which I really re- regret and lament. And I feel like Northern Seminary, you know, I've been a good friend and pastor and a co-author, even with Dave Fitch, uh, we've been really trying to bring the academy and the church uh, together. So I feel like there's a lot of, uh, uh, so for, for the pastoral side, at least in my evangelical context, I think that there's so much pragmatism, there's so much desire to grow a church or sustain a church or maintain a church that everything becomes very pragmatic. The joke is, is you can always tell when a, when a pastor graduated from seminary because that's the last uh, a theology book they purchased. Right. So after they graduate, <laughs> then it's all practical books on, you know, on, on preaching or teaching or, you know, children's ministry, youth ministry or how, leadership, you know, so it's all these practical books, right? Because everything becomes pragmatic and they have the same dusty systematic th- theology book that they graduated with and they've never read a theology. And it's almost the, the reverse for uh, for professors, you know, they, they, uh, they, they aren't pastoring a church. They're not leading churches. They don't know that concerns of people in the pews and they're just kind of digging deeper and deeper into, you know, their academic discipline and source criticism and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, the first half of this podcast, when I kept talking about Augustine and Hegel, and I bored everybody, you know, all that stuff. And so I think uh, th- they just kind of keep wandering away. And so uh, I really long for uh, the church leaders like Augustine and Calvin and Edwards and who were great uh, thinkers, but they also preached regularly and led churches. You know, like Augustine has all these letters to people where he's like solving practical pastoral problems. Like he's not just this thinker guy; he was involved in the life of the church.
0: Yeah, they lived. They lived with their feet on the ground. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Jeff, thanks. I uh, your book, Transcending Subjects: Augustine, Hegel, and Theology, is out. It's published by um,
1: Wiley Blackwell in the Wiley Challenges Blackwell very... Contemporary Theology Series.
0: And your podcast is Theology on Mission, which you can find in iTunes, right?
1: Yes. Indeed. Wherever
0: podcasts are And you can downloaded.
1: find me on Facebook and Twitter and, you know, shout at me. That'd be great. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, thanks for uh, having me, Scott. I really enjoy everything you guys and uh, all of Mockingbird, Mockingbird are doing.
0: And if you want to see us, po- both of us are going to be doing some live podcasting in Philadelphia next week at the... Young, restless, and reforming. Always reforming. Young, restless, and always always reforming. reforming. So we will both be there.
1: Indeed. I'm looking forward to that. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you.
0: On the MockingCast, Sarah Condon from Texas.
2: Hey.
0: And Ethan Richardson is at the home headquarters in Virginia.
3: Yeah, buddy. How's everybody doing?
0: I'm doing fabulously well, actually. Um, Wow. I'm a morning person, so we're recording this in the morning. I've been up since, like, I'm turning into one of these old people that tells you, what time they woke up. I woke up, you know, like around five o'clock and got my day going. So I really, I feel <laughs> lovely.
2: Awesome. I'm good. We're good. You know?
3: I'm a little sleepy.
2: Everything is, are you? Yeah. So yeah. so
0: to wake us up, let's, uh, one of the things that we have in another week, ends this week that I think is great. There's uh, the Prince Think Piece Generator. So you give meaning to your feelings with the Prince thi- Think Peace Generator. And for instance, I'll use it right now. I click on the link and I get Prince, Hollow Notes and the spirituality of the upper Midwest. <laughs> so that could be Sarah's next Magma post or yours, Ethan. Or That's I could click again. Could, yeah. Prince Tipper Gore and the ambiguity of my feelings.
2: So I want to say that half of these start with Prince, comma Tipper Gore, which I think is fantastic.
0: Because <laughs> Tipper Gore was big in censoring Prince.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's pretty great. She's she's featured there. What about this one? How yeah.
3: Prince and Morris Day embodied me,
2: or how Prince,
0: or how <laughs> Prince and Meryl Haggard unleashed me? I clicked at the same time. <laughs> these are great. So I just want to say, like, if you're goofing around uh, seducing the canine, as they say, your job really, you know, not really getting anything done and you're looking for a diversion. This is a great one. I mean, it's just, you could think about how Prince and Max headroom deconstructed me. Remember (laughs) Max headroom. I love that. Uh, Ah. and also on the lighter side, Mm -hmm. Ethan, don't we have something from the Washington post on the perils of choose your own adventure books?
3: Yeah. Uh, it's actually, I think it's, it's in the Atlantic. Um, and what we have is, uh, let's see, who who wrote the piece? Um,
2: Alana Samuels? Is that right? Yeah.
3: And she's basically talking about the, uh, you know, the Choose Your Own Adventure books from the 70s and 80s, early 90s uh, that we all read. And you sort of begin in a cave and you can either go from there to have lunch with Abe Lincoln or you can... Uh, right in a spaceship. But what we often don't talk about is how like that often <laughs> you turn to page 10 and you're dead. And she says, you know, being an indecisive person herself, one thing that she found uh, contributed to it was actually these kinds of books that say you can sort of choose your own adventure and, and make your own make your own destiny.
0: It says <laughs> this great line. Uh, to be sure, the Choose Your Adventure books were works of fiction. And it probably wasn't reasonable of me to take away such deep life lessons from a book like The Cave of Time, which has both a spaceship and cavemen on the cover. But as a child who read a lot of books, including Holocaust stories, in which the wrong choice could indeed be fatal, I learned to face every choice with the knowledge that there are terrible outcomes possible. <laughs> there is never a day in which you are not confronted with choice. Some seemingly small choices can going inter- to determine the path of the rest of your life. One of the Choose Your Adventure's author, authors, R.A. Montgomery, has said, no pressure or anything.
3: <laughs> right.
2: <laughs> Oof. Yeah, I never read these books. Uh, my parents were pretty particular about what we read. So ironically, I was kind of a Diary of Anne Frank kind of girl. Um, <laughs> I was. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, I mean, I I think that this article is funny to me because we're we have uh, vacation Bible school season upon us, and I don't know if you guys you don't have kids, but vacation Bible school is just like um, a wreck of like one discover adventure with Jesus story after another, <laughs> like spelunking with Jesus or like deep sea diving with you know the Holy Spirit or whatever. <laughs> so that's what it made me think of, us. you know, VBS and choosing your own adventure. And, Those
0: VBS themes are always uh, like. Uh, God's Garden, Sunshine's Kids. I'm looking for the VBS theme. It's like the conquest of Canaan. (laughs) (laughs) There's not giants in the land. Let's get them, boys. That's for your younger boys. I mean, that's...
2: My kid would sign up for that.
3: (laughs) Maybe I should be writing curriculum for VBS. You should.
2: You should. Absolutely. We need that.
3: I know in the last last season of Breaking Bad, um, I don't know if it was Gawker. Maybe Gawker just... uh, told us about them, but they did these, these kinds of covers, the choose your own adventure covers for the breaking Mm -hmm. bad season. And it was like, you know, like in the trailer with Tuco and I mean, (laughs) breaking bad is so obviously not a choose your own adventure. It's like choose your own adventure and land um, on a pile of money that means your destruction. So
2: Right. well i love what she said about how it taught her to lie what the author said about you know what i mean like because you'd flip the page and see the end and you'd be like well i'll go back and make the other choice and like how life doesn't work that way but wouldn't it be lovely if it did you know that you knew all the fallout you were about to create and you're like you know what i'm, I'm not gonna do that just kidding so if you, if you want
0: to make your kid incredibly anxious and neurotic and at the same time teach them to be a deceiver and not self-aware these are the books for your children
2: these are the right
3: yeah it's your decision it's
0: your decision moving on to a more see i don't know if it's more serious or not but i i we have another piece from vox here right by Mm -hmm. emmett renson what a great tale. The smug style In American liberalism
3: Yeah Yeah so um, I, I mean I, I sort of It's kind of the same Word as as snobbery I mean it's, it's Kind of just this general Attitude of contempt um, That she's talking about That comes from the left And how the left views the right And how that sort of makes up most of the, the way that conversation happens from, from the left's point of view. And I mean, it's so true and it's also true that it's really, there's a charm to it, right? I mean, having, having this kind of, uh, smugness makes you feel like you are an elite, you know, that you sort of stand above the, um, what does she call them? Rubes. And, um, and it, and it does sort of lend you this privilege to be able to, to speak about something um, as, if, um, as if they just don't get it. You know, they just don't know the truth.
0: I like, I like that they say a liberal just needs to look at their Facebook feed to find the explanation why. Um, you know, for this phenomenon. Study shows, daily show viewers more informed than viewers of Fox News. They're beating CNN watchers too. NPR listeners are best informed of all. He likes that. You're better off watching nothing than watching Fox. He likes that even more. The good news doesn't stop. <laughs> liberals aren't just better informed. They're smarter. They've got better grammar. They know more words. Smart kids grow up to be liberals. While conservatives reason like drunks. <laughs> like, it's so, it, is just, it is so great. Like, and you have seen things like this you know, on Facebook. They're, eer- they're eerily uh, realistic. So, yeah. For sure. Sarah, you said there was something... Uh, blog that you just yeah
2: so yeah it's a personal blog but it went pretty viral it's called um it's the rescuing judas it's a wordpress blog but um i i thought it was it was it's such a beautiful piece it's written by a pastor i'm not sure in what denomination but um it's called uh what if they're right a progressive pastor's fears laid bare it's just this really vulnerable piece that this clergy person has written about how they've invested a lot of their ministry, and their view of the gospel in liberal politics, um, in progressive politics, um, as he calls them here, and how they're not really sure if that's working. And and it it you know I don't I, I the last thing I want to do is say that this person is smug, but it he i think it's a he certainly aligns himself with a lot of those similar sort of we've got the real answers this is this is the actual way you need to look at things politically and this is how it looks in the lens of the gospel um anyway he he writes here uh i mean it's just so vulnerable in one of the last paragraphs um maybe our vision of the gospel is not correct i mean I, you know, it's, it's tough when, when these kinds of, we've definitely got the market cornered on answers, attitudes, uh, creep into our theology. I mean, I had a professor in seminary and it, it just rocked the whole class who said, like, if your politics 100% line up with your theology, then you need to start asking yourself some tough questions. So anyway, made me think of that.
0: So this, uh, book, uh, American Grace by Putnam and I forget who the other co-authors, but it's basically an exhaustive study of American religious life. And they point out that one of the reasons why evangelicalism grew was because the mainline in the early 60s got so partisan and there was no spirituality in a lot of places. It was just kind of Vietnam protest songs and left-wing politics. So people didn't find anything transcendent or spiritual there. So then the evangelicals went the opposite way and and... Grew, but then quickly, you know, the moral majority movement and stuff around like 1979, 1980, uh, this swings the evangelical church uh, to be the mirror, Im- mirror image of the mainline church people left. So now people are leaving the evangelical churches, especially like millennials, uh, because they're finding it too politically polarizing. It's not transcendent. It's all just cultural politics. So it's funny that like you see this trend in all wings of the American church. Well, I think, uh, there's enough smugness to go around. So, um, yeah, but it, it is, it is interesting too, because I think one of the, one of the, you, you see this like with the Trump phenomenon, right? Because the more elites say, well, we just can't have a president like this. The more the populist kind of crowd comes out and votes more. It's like, just right. it's, this is the law one oh one. why the law doesn't yeah. work. tell people yeah. don't vote for Trump. People will want to vote for Trump. Like it's just that way.
3: Yeah, I mean it's it's a total self fulfilling prophecy. She says that that you know the the sort of attitude of exclusion ends up making the people who have been excluded feel even more uh, resentful. You know, and um, it's also like human relationships one hundred and one too. I mean, the way she is it a she What's uh, the writer's name?
2: I actually it's Emmett. Emmett's the first name, yeah.
3: So Emmett writes about sort of how the um, how this happened. You know that it was it was basically um, you know that the the labor the laborer the American laborer was uh, was a Democrat, and and now as as time has gone on, very few white uh, laborers are actually Democrats anymore, and that smugness has been sort of the product of a broken relationship. You know, um, it's, it's really just a way to sort of sort of self protect in a moment of weakness, you know? And, um, and then how interesting that like the American media then creates all of these, um, sort of confirmation biases, uh, to stand up with it. You know, we have, the Daily Show and, um, and all of these news sources, the internet, to sort of fuel the way, uh, help us sort of confirm what we already believe about, um, about these dumb hicks, as they, as they call them.
0: pieces this week that in another weekends that i just found uh incredibly moving. One was from the Dallas Morning News. This is a Texas area story, Sarah, Yay,
2: about uh, a good one for Texas.
0: <laughs> a tale that so Ethan, this is the tale of Johnny Manziel is no longer one of sports but of being human.
3: Yeah. Yeah, there's there's been a few um There's been a few uh, pieces on Johnny Manziel. The New York Times did one this week, too. Um, Almost about sort of how the system has done him in as he's um, as he's sort of he was such a limelight figure in college sports and um, he was such a polarizing figure. But, I mean, coming from a family with a lot of expectations and um, a lot of laurels to, to rest on as he, like, entered the NFL. And, um, and again, just, I mean, it really is just a story of the the excruciating weight of expectations. He enters the, the NFL, um, you know, with the nickname Johnny Football, you have to perform, you know. And, and instead, he's, in the last two years, he's won two football games. And, obviously, he's been all over the news with... With the trouble that he's gotten in, um, and so yeah, both of these articles kind of talk about how um, Manziel's story is a human story. It's it's no longer an athletic story.
0: According to the NCAA, fifty-two percent of the young men who play college football believe they will make a professional roster, when the reality is that one point six percent of them will make it. And before this is from another article that. In the Dallas Morning News. And before we make a collective nod of disapproval, a study conducted by Harvard and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation found that 26% of all parents hope their children become professional athletes. One in four.
2: That is crazy, people. Give up on that dream. Like, (laughs) and do you really want that for your kid? Like, it's just like being a celebrity is the worst. Like, I can't imagine how difficult that must be. And how no one sees you as a person anymore. And especially when you fail like this, you just become that failure. I mean, everyone forgets that Johnny Manziel is like somebody's kid and, you know, somebody's friend and somebody's brother. Like, he just becomes a failure for everyone. It's it's horrible. I remember when we first moved to New York City and we would see celebrities on the street and I would, like, freak out. And Josh, my husband, and we're newly married and we didn't really know each other that well when we got married. And he, so it was like every day was a new new experience of my husband. And he would always be like, don't freak out. Like, it's just a person. And I remember thinking back then, like, who do you think you are? Like, that person's a big deal. But for Josh, (laughs) it was like, this is, this is like an actual human being. And like, we need to interact with him as such. And so I was thinking of that when I was reading with this stuff, like, it must be so painful to to be um, to have so much of yourself lost in the eyes of others.
0: I love the last line in this article um, by is by a Catholic priest I think named um, Father Joshua Whitfield. He says that in sports as in life, redemption is as powerful is a powerful and always possible miracle. Mm. And that's what we all should want, his mm-hmm. redemption. It'll make a better story and it'll make us better too. And the last thing we, uh, that was also incredibly moving, this story, I guess this is from the Washington Post. Yeah. Um, yeah. A, a compassionate judge sentences a veteran to 24 hours in jail, then joins him behind bars.
3: Yeah. I, I mean, I almost feel like we should leave it at that. Uh, there's, there's, there's a (laughs) video, there's a video that um, we'll post on the site that the Washington post uh, put on theirs. But yeah, there's a, I mean, it's just such a good story of uh, a judge seeing someone and seeing someone in their suffering and meeting them there uh, rather than S- sort of depersonalizing him based on his crimes, um, and going there with him.
0: Yeah, this guy Sergeant Joseph Cerna has almost been killed three times. Was a special forces uh, soldier who served in Afghanistan. Uh, it, it just and then you know as he came back, he he was caught. You know he got several D- DUIs. You know again, lots. Of this is related to uh PTSD. I think mm-hmm. about the links between the last story too. Like we have these disposable classes of people in our society, right? To right, entertain right. us and fight our wars. And yeah. then we don't really want to you know take responsibility for the mess that their lives become, uh so right. that we can be safe and entertained. Uh so yeah, this is just incredibly moving.
2: Yeah. I um you know so I finished high school in uh May of 2001. Or yeah, May of 2001. And then um and I remember, so I went to a public high school in Mississippi. So a lot of my classmates uh, went into the military, just socioeconomically, like that's what they did. And I can remember the big scholarship day, and they all walked across the stage, and they were, you know, these big announcements of how much money they were going to get from the, you know, from the army, from scholarships and stuff. And then, and none of us thought they would ever serve really in some in a major way. And then September 11th happens, you know, just a few months later, and everything changes. And the stories that I've heard from back home about how many of them have spent time in jail, you know, the number of suicides that we've seen and just um, the lack of mercy that's been shown to them. I just mm-hmm. I found this story so incredibly. I mean, the judge, he he said he described in the piece how the conversation that he had that night with the judge was like a father son conversation. Mm-hmm. And There's just something so like divine parent so like god is father about this moment mm-hmm. that um i don't know I, it's just beautiful
0: yeah carl bart describes the story of jesus in the gospels as the story of the judge judged in our place and uh i'm just thinking about this as this picture it reminded me also of something that you wrote uh yesterday ethan in a post on the site called the gospel steady work of reversal yeah And you talk about the the cross is the punctuating moment of reversal where God's law and his gospel meet, where the good guy becomes the bad guy and bad guys get away gratis. You say this is easy to theorize or read from the Bible, but the beautiful thing about a living Christ is that these cruciform moments of reversal happen today in our own very personal ways. Whenever the gospel is heard, we are brought again to zero. This is the gospel's aha moment when we suddenly look strange to ourselves. These are not one-time blinding conversion moments. It happens every time, every time the gospel reaches the heart. And I was just thinking of it's about what you wrote and how this story of this judge and the soldier are just a, a they're just a an embodied parable of mm-hmm. the truth of of what happens when the gospel takes root mm-hmm. in a broken world. Yeah. May it be
3: true in our lives.
0: Thanks both of you for being with me yet again and I hope you have both have a great weekend thanks for listening to the Mockingcast as always you can find any of the content we referenced on our website ember.com. and if you like what you heard please drop by iTunes give us a rating and a review or send us an email at info at mbird.com we love mail and by all means have a great weekend see you next week